Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of this week's top stories include the compliance response to the tragedies in El Paso and Dayton. Congress is considering an anti-foreign extortion bill to supplement the FCPA. It's a world free of corruption, a dream of fools. The Basel Institute on Governance says no. What is cognitive governance? James Bone begins a five-part exploration. Take a look at an exhaustive study of AML and sanction trends under the Trump administration. We look at what is the federal extortion and blackmail statute. Sarah Croft begins a two-part series. Uh, Does everyone want to do the right thing? One of the most curmudgeonly articles I've read in a long time. How do you make a code of conduct great and a Swiss bank ignores compliance advice and pays the penalty for it? We take a look at uh, SFOs, uh, recently released guidance for corporate cooperation, review adventures in compliance, my exploration on the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance, the upcoming podcast series of everything you've always wanted to know about monitors but were afraid to ask. They get another appeal for Doug Cornelius and his ride in the Pan Mass Challenge to raise money for the fight against cancer. And finally, um, we take a look at the Converge 19 conference where listeners to this podcast can receive a complimentary ticket. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, along with uh, Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 166 for the week ending August 9, 2019, the El Paso and Dayton Tragedies Edition. As our hearts go out to those communities which suffered gun massacre tragedies last weekend uh, and all other communities that have done so, we uh, wanted to take a look at some of the compliance uh, stories uh, and from, or rather those stories from the compliance perspective and look at some of our uh, top stories we've collected over the week. So Jay, with a, a somber welcome, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Let's dive right in. So uh, I really thought we should lead with this story because I think it's the most important story, uh, certainly this week and and over uh, quite a while, unfortunately, in the United States, which, of course, is the gun massacres. But really, uh, what's the compliance perspective from all of this, Jay? So we cited two, uh, three sources. Uh, Matt and I did a podcast on it. Um, Kristen Broden over at the uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And Matt and I's podcast was around the compliance officer and compliance function response. And Kristen looked at it in terms of corporate disclosures, which is a, a really interesting format or mechanism to consider this. And, and Matt felt so 
passionate about it. He comp uh, was compelled to uh, blog about it further where he further refined some of the thoughts and concepts we talked about in the podcast. But from the compliance perspective, unfortunately, uh, I think compliance officers are going to have to step up and really take a look at uh, several different areas. One is, do you have policies and procedures around this? Do you have a uh, policy about bringing guns to the workplace? Do you have uh, active trainer, excuse me, active shooter training? Uh, at the gym this morning, they had a new sign up. You couldn't take uh, a backpack or a closed sack, tied off sack to the uh, above the uh, locker rooms on the first floor anymore. So obviously people are thinking about this from the corporate perspective. What does it mean if you're associated with a company that uh, is part of this? Uh, Walmart employees are beginning to stage walkouts uh, for fear of their own personal safety. So um, one of the things Matt really talked about in his blog post was the Edelman Trust Report. And frankly, if you don't feel safe at work, you're going to have a very low level of trust at work. And I think about my wife who works for a major uh, oil field service company here in Houston. Uh, and what would happen if, if someone walked in uh, with a uh, AK-47 or a other automatic rifle? So unfortunately, lots to think about. Uh, uh, since the government doesn't seem to want to do anything or can't do anything, uh, corporations are really going to have to take the lead with this. And, and all stakeholders in corporations, uh, investors, employees, management, uh, third parties are demanding action. And it looks like that that action is going to fall in large part on the shoulders of the compliance professionals, uh, the uh, security professionals in organizations, HR and a wide variety of other disciplines that never thought they'd probably have to worry about someone walking in with an automatic rifle and uh, killing uh, 15 to 30 people within 30 seconds of firing their clip. I'd just really like to commend you and um, Matt for that podcast. Um, although, as you you know, we've said, it was a very somber subject matter. I, I think you guys started an important first conversation about how, uh, as you said, that it's going to be up to corporations because of the trust they have with their employees to start taking some of these first steps and managing risks that they had never really thought about until the last week. So uh, it's a good podcast, and I recommend everyone uh, check it out if you have an opportunity. Um, next up, we have a story from the FCPA blog from Dick Casson, and we're going to take a look as uh, Congress uh, considers the uh, demand side in uh, the FCPA gap. And Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and four members of the U.S. House of Representatives introduced legislation that will criminalize extortion by foreign officials, enabling the DOJ to indict officials for demanding bribes to fulfill, neglect, or violate their official duties. This legislation was developed with the support of the U.S. Helsinki Commission, and late last year, Paul Fire, or excuse me, Tom Firestone, a partner in the D.C. office of Baker McKenzie, and Maria Pitikovska, a Baker associate, wrote a uh, post for the FCPA blog advocating that U.S. legislators attack the demand side of overseas bribery. They said this would help keep companies honest and help companies who use the FCPA as a shield to resist bribe demands. In a statement about the proposed law, Representative Jackson Lee said, we cannot leave our prosecutors without legal tools they need to protect the rule of law. So this is a, 
a very interesting occurrence and kind of brings the uh, U.S. legal um, penalties for uh, bribery and brings them in line with the U.K., France, Netherlands, and Switzerland, among other countries that have already criminalized foreign extortion. Jay, we had a very interesting report from an outfit called the Basel Institute on Governance. And while I was certainly aware of this organization, uh, I had not, not sat down and read through an annual report. They just released their annual report for 2018. And the um, Institute started off with the provocative question, is anti-corruption, anti-bribery a, um, a dream of fools? And for happily for us and literally the rest of the world, uh, they say no, and they actually take steps to to make it so. They are actively involved in something called the International Center for Asset Recovery, where they are trying to recover uh, monies purloined by uh, unscrupulous government officials. Uh, they also have a provision, or rather, excuse me, a division for public governance, a uh, public finance management unit, an International Center for Collective Action, and finally, um, a Division for Corporate Governance and Compliance. And they've got a lot of uh, great resources, uh, user-friendly compliance tools, and other information. It's a pretty exhaustive report, but nevertheless one that I thought was um, very uh, useful. So uh, check it out. We've linked to it in the show notes. Uh, you want to tell us about James Bone and his uh, beginning of a five-part series on cognitive governance? Thanks. Uh, this appears to us uh, from Corporate Compliance Insights, and uh, James Bone says that cognitive governance is a radical departure from traditional risk management. Uh, he traces his background back to 2008 when the Great Recession started, and there was a 60% decline in the market value. He became redundant and was soon laid off, and he started to contemplate what would cognitive governance look like. And uh, the most surprising and commonly cited failure by most risk disciplines is human behavior and error. And human behavior is cited as the greatest vulnerability in cybersecurity, but it is also a leading cause of fraud, operational, and organizational failure. He goes on to take a look at um, cognitive governance and says it's made up of five distinct disciplines. First of, all, first off, there's risk governance, which separates the duties of risk management and risk assessment. Then perceptions of risk, which seeks to understand different views and perceptions of risk that may hinder governance. Human element design addresses the cognitive load, situational awareness, and human-machine interaction. Intelligence and modeling focuses on business performance, efficiency, security, and risk. And finally, capital structure concerns risk-adjusted returns on capital and capital exposures due to oblique legal and contractual obligations. Cognitive governance is designed to expose blind parts, uh, excuse me, blind spots and inefficiencies that exist in all organizations that view risk management as separate and distinct from strategy. Most organizations lack resources to invest in artificial intelligence, but can still benefit from a focus on cognitive governance. Instead of starting with an answer like traditional risk frameworks, cognitive risk framework is centered upon asking questions that have not yet been answered. 
In the next installment, he will take a look at the five principles of cognitive governance. So next up, Tom, we uh, have something uh, that is a real great piece on AML and BSA sanctions. Why don't you tell us what's happening at NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog? Right, Jay. So uh, lawyers at Wilmer Hale have put together an exhaustive, and I mean exhaustive, uh, report on AML, uh, anti-money laundering, and sanctions, trends, and developments under the Trump administration. It's quite a long piece. Uh, it details those regulatory trends and developments, changes in the risk environment, the uh, changes in uh, uh, commentary by uh, government units and the uh, regulators. It uh, points out some of the top risks uh, now. Uh, interestingly, the marijuana slash cannabis industry was one of those. Uh, prepaid cards was another. They looked at um, regulatory changes such as FinCEN's customer due diligence rules and a few others. The uh, New York Department of Financial Services, Rule 504, a transaction monitoring program, and really um, uh, the um, multiple enforcement actions that the Trump administration has engaged in. So it's a really great report. Not only is it important, Jay, for uh, AML compliance professionals, but really for anti-corruption compliance professionals, because as, as we have seen, the bad guys are gravitating towards the softer targets for AML, and banks have hardened themselves up in terms of uh, responding to legislation such as the Bank Secrecy Act and Patriot Act. And so commercial corporations are now uh, fully in line for exploitation from uh, uh, nefarious actors. So uh, it's a great resource. Uh, take a look at it. We'll tell you not only um, what's happened in the past and where it may be going in the future, but they also uh, detail many of the uh, requirements from regulators around financial services in the financial industry that I think every anti-compliance uh, anti-bribery practitioner needs to, uh, to take a look at. So, Jay, Sarah Croft, uh, our uh, great resource over on the Grand Jury blog, uh, is back with a piece. You want to tell us a little bit about that? So, uh, earlier this year, in February of 2019, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos published an explosive blog post accusing the National Enquirer's owner, American Media Inc., of blackmailing him. Bezos' accusations could have serious consequences for American media. In September 2008, the organization signed a non-prosecution agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. As part of that non-prosecution agreement, they have agreed that they shall commit no crimes whatsoever after its executions. If the government determines that they did blackmail or extort Bezos, then it may charge the company for any federal violation of the office which has knowledge. In other words, if it was a crime, then all bets are off and AMI no longer enjoys the protection of the non-prosecution agreement. Sarah goes in to take a look at federal extortion blackmail statute and looks at six different statutes that affect this situation. These statutes could be employed together to enlarge the scope of charges against the defendant. Imagine a government employee who sends an extortionate letter and then receives money in return. He could be charged under the allying offenses under these statutes. Federal statutes also prohibit extortionate conduct for other specific contexts. In part two, Sarah will take a look at the Hobbs Act, the Travel Act, 
and sentencing guidelines for these offenses. Plus, she'll give her take on whether or not she thinks American media and the Bezos situation is actually a crime. So we'll link to that next week. And now one of Tom's favorite articles for this week, we're going to say uh, what, whether or not everybody does the right thing. And Calvin London speaks about this on Corporate Compliance Insights. So Jay, I think we're going to have to give this the curmudgeon of the year award. Uh, if there's anyone that's ever challenged Mike Kaler for being the curmudgeon, and certainly uh, Calvin London in this article, it's just uh, fairly well amazing. Uh, basically, his thesis is that um, he simply does not believe that anyone wants to do the right thing anymore and that what many want to do is uh, whatever they can get away with. And that's certainly a um, pretty, uh, what's the right word? Uh, glass, is, glass is half empty point of uh, view? I think glass is a spilled and broken on the floor point of view. Um, he cites two as, as examples, Martin Shrekrelli and uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani, and they're certainly bad actors and bad characters, but I'm not sure the entire world should be blamed for those three. Uh, on the upside, though, he does say that this is a uh, future job security for compliance officers. So uh, perhaps I've misread the intent of his piece that uh, uh, just because everyone in the world is out to uh, screw everyone else doesn't mean that compliance officers won't have a job. Uh, nevertheless, when you, I, I guess the takeaway, Jay, is that uh, they're appear to be, you know, reputable people uh, from his bio. He's, he's been in business for uh, quite some time um, in the pharmaceutical industry, and uh, they actually believe this. So uh, I don't think this was written with irony, but perhaps so. Um, and maybe the, uh, the other lesson is it's really time for uh, us baby boomers to move on out and let the millennials and iGens take over because uh, from what I know of them, uh, they certainly want to make the world a better place. But uh, anyway, uh, interesting uh, curmudgeonly article. So uh, next up, we have something that comes to us from Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matter blog. Ed Petrie talks about how to make your code of conduct great. Uh, he first of all takes a look at the core functions of what your code of conduct should be doing for your organization. It should set the tone for corporate culture. It should lay out the expected behavior for employees and the points that, that and points the way to additional resources. It reduces legal liability and represents your organization's commitment to integrity. There are five questions that Ed thinks you should ask to improve your code of conduct. Number one, take a look at what's worth keeping. You know, just because you haven't refreshed this in 12 or 24 months, there may be things that work well with uh, communicating tone and uh, uh, expectations to your company. Next, is it readable? We don't want this to be 40 pages of single-space legalese, but we want it to be something where an employee can find a quick answer and feel like they've gotten uh, pointed in the right direction. Number three, is it aligned with your organization's risk profile? And number four, does it incorporate emerging issues? And the last issue is, does it emphasize protection for employees? Uh, here, Ed talks about, uh, are there best practices for codes of conduct that clearly communicate that employees who report possible min misconduct will not be retaliated against? Regularly assessing your code, assessing your code of conduct 
ensures that you're consistently underscoring your values and keeping them top of mind with employees. Take a code from good to great can mean a world of different for all those who reply upon it. So um, Ed is also in the middle of a three-part boot camp series that's on Navex talking about how to refresh your code of conduct. Uh, next up, Tom is going to bring us something from the files of banks behaving badly. In the never-ending saga of banks behaving badly, our colleague Jacqueline Jagger over at Compliance Week writes about a Swiss bank, I won't even try to begin to pronounce it, which reached a $10.7 million settlement with uh, the Department of Justice and sustained a NPA for co committing tax evasions after recommendations made by a compliance officer went ignored. Now, this is back when the um, D Department of Justice was going after Americans who engaged in tax evasion, and this bank was advised to comply with that law, yet um, failed to do so, and not only failed to do so, but actively encouraged U.S. citizens to evade taxes by doing business with them. So uh, a couple of things. One is um, when uh, compliance officer says to do something, you really do need to listen. Uh, number two is that the reach, uh, the jurisdictional re reach of the Department of Justice, here we have a Swiss bank with no U.S. operations, yet they were uh, ready to uh, enter to a guilty plea and got an NPA for their, uh, for their trouble. So uh, interesting stuff from uh, Jacqueline Jager. So last, certainly not least, is an article that comes to us from Dick Casson at the FCPA blog. The Serious Fraud Office finally issues guidance for corporate uh, cooperation. SFO Director Lisa Rzowski and the UK Serious Fraud Office published a five-page memo on Tuesday that tells company the steps that they should take if they decide to cooperate with the agency in investigation. The guidance doesn't guarantee leniency in return for cooperation, but says charging decisions will take cooperation into account. Uh, actions that are encouraged include identifying suspected wrongdoing and criminal conduct, and uh, reporting this to the SFO. SFO says genuine cooperation is inconsistent with protecting specific individuals or unjustifiably blaming others. Uh, this hopefully will bring SFO in line with what we're doing here more in the States. Uh, they have initially had one deferred prosecution agreement in 2015, and since then it's been used four more times. Unfortunately, they have not had the success with the DPA here uh, in the UK with the same uh, success rate that we've had it here in the US. So we will link to that. And also within the link to the story is the five-page new guidance. So Tom, uh, this week, what has been happening in the land of Sherlock Holmes and Adventures in Compliance? So Jay, I had another five-part podcast series on my ongoing podcast uh, uh, series, Adventures in Compliance, which features the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and Compliance. Monday, we took a look at the illustrious client and reference check. Tuesday, the Blanche Soldier and learning to ask for help. Wednesday, the Mirrors and Stone and storytelling and compliance. Thursday, the Three Gables and institutional justice. And today, which just posted, the Sussex Vampire and Root Cause Analysis. So if you're into Sherlock Holmes, if you're into compliance, if you're into any storytelling, this is definitely the series for you, so uh, check it out. And it really leads to a uh, 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 series that you and I are going to do next week, Jay. Uh, it's really you, 
Uh, I'm just going to provide the microphone, but we take a look at everything you wanted to know about monitors, but we're afraid to ask. So we're going to introduce a topic of monitors, take a look at the power of both a post-resolution monitorship and a pre-settlement monitorship, take a look at how to select a monitor, and of course, tackle the always difficult question of monitor cost. Well, that'll post on Monday through Friday of next week. For those binge listeners, uh, it will post on uh, Megaphone and iTunes at midnight on Monday the 12th. Um, a couple of other things, if I could, Jay. Uh, Doug Cornelius, your uh, fellow homer in Boston, uh, did complete his 192-mile Pan-Massachusetts ride for uh, fighting cancer. And I hope uh, listeners will join me in making a donation to Doug's uh, Doug and the fight against cancer. All the money that Doug raises as part of the Pan-Mass Challenge goes to the fight against cancer. So it's a, a great and um, worthy cause. And certainly I want to congratulate Doug for, I think this is five straight years for him. And then finally, Jay, if I could end with uh, one of the top conferences, compliance conferences around has become the Conversant Converge Conference. And uh, this year it's going to be held on October 2 and 3 in Denver. But what I'm really thrilled about, Jay, is I've negotiated with Conversant a uh uh, complimentary uh, uh, fee of zero for listeners to this podcast. So uh, if you use the uh, passcode FOXVIP when you register, you will be able to register at no cost. It is going to be a great couple of days. This is not a, uh, uh, a customer appreciation event. This is literally one of the top compliance conferences. It's, it's smaller. It's focused. It's focused on high-end um uh, users, high-end people with high-end knowledge in the compliance industry. Um, the educational se sessions will be second to none. There will be uh, facilitated discussions by industry, by region on compliance issues. Um, the um, keynotes uh, are going to be, I think, uh, great. And then uh, for those who listen to this podcast and want to see it live, we're actually going to do a live uh, Everything Compliance podcast and now that I say that, maybe we can even do an, a live um, This Week in FCPA podcast as well, Jay. Uh, but uh, so for the podcast aficionados out there, it'll be a great time to, uh, to come and, and participate and, and as the audience for a live uh, podcast. So I'm very excited about it. It's, it's uh, a great sense of community, and you will walk away from that with friends in the compliance community that you didn't know you had, and literally you can keep uh, for the next year till the next conversant event. So check it out. Uh, yeah. We've linked to it on uh, the show notes. Once again, the uh, code is FOXVIP. And the price can't be beat. Uh, two other things. My colleague uh, Eric Feldman will be presenting a session. And uh, Tom was a bit modest, and he forgot to let you know that he will be one of the keynoters at the event as well. So I think that pretty much wraps up everything uh, for the show. And Les, Tom, uh, would you like to uh, just kind of fell a little bit about the Houston Astros and their records uh, and their record? I don't want to deny you this opportunity on the podcast. Well, Jay, um, I, I'm not sure you've heard in Los Angeles, but they're actually returning the World Series championship trophy to Houston this year. And uh, the Astros have their best record at 71 and 40 at, at any, any time in their history at this point in the season, uh, we were able to pick up, uh, I think he was a, I'm not sure if he was cut or he was a, 
He was a triple-A pitcher. I think his name was Zach Grinke or something like that. Anyway, we just picked him up, and we, we're hoping he fills out our rotation. Uh, we managed to get most of our players who were on it injured back, and, um, you know, uh, we're just going to take it back this year. So if you're a Yankee fan, if you're a Red Sox fan, or any other fan, uh, come on down to Houston and enjoy it because we're going to enjoy it. Well, I am uh, excited right now as we tape this. My DVR is recording last night's preseason game between the New England Patriots and the Detroit Lions. So uh, not that I'm giving up on the Red Sox, but I'm just going to start focusing my efforts on a place where they might be able to make a difference. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 166 for the week ending August 9th, 2019. It's uh, with a heavy heart that we remember the tragedies in El Paso and Dayton, and we wish healing and good things to come forward. So thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, and I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions on this episode, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you will join Jay and I next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.